Welcome to Between the Covers, the show for readers and writers and lovers of books. I'm Stephanie and I'm a publisher at Red Penguin Books where we publish books of all types and genres. So whether you have a manuscript ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or even 300 pieces of loose leaf shoved in a drawer. And yes, once a month I do receive an envelope with loose leaf. Uh, visit us at redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. I'm so excited today to be joined by three authors who have completely unleashed themselves. Julie Gianelli Connor is the author of Savoring the Camino de Santiago. It's the pilgrimage, not the hike. Edward Lerner is the author of The Best of Edward M. Lerner. And finally, Tammy Gross is the author of The Treasure Galleons, prequel to the Golden Age of piracy series. But first we're gonna meet Julie, the author of Savoring the Camino de Santiago. And our author writes, the book focuses on the Camino de Santiago, an ancient pilgrimage trail that began around 820 AD. A resurrection of interest in the Camino since the 1970s has meant that more than 300,000 individuals are nowadays undertaking the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostelo each year. The author made the pilgrimage in 2016 via the French route from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port in France to Santiago de Compostelo in Spain, a journey of some 500 miles. The book incorporates a blog and travel journal kept during that pilgrimage. The book is also a memoir with Ms. Connor explaining how and why she decided to make the pilgrimage. Savoring the Camino is also a practical guide to the Camino for those interested in it. While the prevailing culture of the Camino is to walk the route, Ms. Connor believes that walking is not the only way to undertake the Camino. Taking buses, taxis, or even driving are also valid ways to experience the Camino in her opinion. She advocates for pilgrims to slow down and savor the pilgrimage by stopping in churches, cathedrals, museums, and interesting towns and cities along the route. Not everyone experiences spiritual or personal growth through the act of walking. Our author urges pilgrims to take the trip in the manner that will most connect them with their spiritual, religious, transcendent wellsprings. After completing the pilgrimage, the author journeyed to Madrid and Toledo, and there are chapters in the book covering those visits. Ms. Connor also recounts activities following the journey related to the Camino, such as writing an open letter to relevant governmental authorities in Spain and hosting a thank you dinner in Houston for those who helped her plan and organize her pilgrimage. The book also includes a useful chapter on resources as well as an index. Please welcome our pilgrim and author, Julie O'Connor. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, I really appreciate your having me on your program and allowing me to connect with you, the other two great authors here and all of your listeners, so thanks. I am so thrilled. I've never personally made this the journey. I have many friends who have, and it is on my bucket list. So when I saw your book, I said, oh, I'm ready for this one. This is exciting. Uh, I, I know you took the journey. I wanted to ask you first about your title. It's the pilgrimage, not the hike. 
Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, to tell you the truth, I was a little bit apprehensive about publishing my book because it is a non-standard book in a couple of ways. Uh, one way is that it is not a pure guidebook nor a pure memoir. It's a mixture of the two. And I wasn't sure how that would be received. But the second and more important way is that almost all books on the Camino nowadays, and there's been a huge resurgence of them, are about walking the Camino. Mm -hmm. I think walking the Camino is fine, but I don't think you have to walk the Camino. So I am a heretic. <laughs> there are a lot of uh, Camino fundamentalists, and I call them that, um, who think that if you don't walk every step, and if you don't carry everything on your pilgrimage on your back, mm -hmm. that you're not a true pilgrim. And I really very much disagree with that. And I, I take my basis as my mother and my sister, who was very handicapped, went on a pilgrimage to Lourdes back in the 1950s. My sister didn't walk a step. But to say she wasn't a real pilgrim for me is ridiculous. And the same is true nowadays. I, a pilgrimage doesn't have to be a walk. People have decided it should be a walk. It must be a walk, but I don't agree. So I was afraid that the pilgrim pilgrimage fundamentalist would attack me. You know, the, the, the pilgrimage strikes back or the Camino strikes back. And that's uh, but, but there are pilgrimage, you know, fundamentalists. <laughs> That hasn't happened. It's amazing. I mean, some people, I have, I think, one rating on Amazon, which said this book should be called The Walk, no, The, the, the Drive, Bus, Something, and Never Walk book about the Camino. Well, you know, that's not true either, because I actually walked a lot of the Camino myself, and I got my Compostela, which is the certificate saying you've done at least 100 kilometers on foot. I did many more than 100 kilometers, but I didn't walk the whole thing. So I don't think, I think the idea of having to walk long distances puts a lot of people off. And so they just don't do it. And my point of view is to experience this whole historic route is so valuable, whether or not you actually walk it. I think you should just do it no matter how you do it. I agree. Uh, bring me back to 2016 when you made the walk. What made you do it? Was it, was it spur of the moment? Had it been weighing on your heart for a decade? What was the circumstances? Uh, more like about five decades. <laughs> uh, I actually, I talk about this in the book. What were the motivations? And um, one of the big motivations was that in about 1971, I dropped out of college and I went to live in Portugal. And my roommate at the time, who was a New Zealander, gave me a book and said, you've got to read this book. And it was James Michener's Iberia. Now, for those of us who are a little bit older, we'll remember James Michener's extremely popular author in the 50s, 60s, 70s. He's not so much talked about nowadays. But anyway, he was very popular then. And he wrote this book, Iberia. Chapter 13 is all about the Camino. Now, when he did the Camino in about 1968, 69, he didn't walk the Camino because there was nobody walking the Camino. It was an abandoned thing. It was an abandoned pilgrimage route. He drove it and he met friends along the way and he learned about the history and he wrote about it. Well, when I wrote that chapter, I said, I want to do this. But I was 21 years old, living on the economy, which means I was poor, and working. So I had neither the money nor the time to do it, but I filed it away in the back of my brain. And when I knew I was coming up to... Uh, retirement, I thought, okay, what do I want to do? And I knew I wanted to take one long trip, and it was the Camino. 
So um, as soon as I could, which another, anyway, I had several reasons for wanting to walk in, but as soon as I could, I, I planned to do it and I did it in 2016. So I had the book is something that made me want to do it, but for me, the pilgrimage was a pilgrimage of gratitude. People do the pilgrimage for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are, have a sorrow, like a death in the family that they need time to process. Some of them have, are doing it for penance, something in their past that they feel they need to pay, pay penance for. But in my case, it was just gratitude because in, when I dropped out of college, it was because I was a, a, attacked criminally and I thought I was gonna die. So every day since that day, I felt like it was a day given to me that I didn't necessarily have to have had. And so the whole thing, so it was the criminal attack. It was also, I went through cancer. I said, boy, I've been, you know, despite all these negative things, I've been so lucky to live as long as I have. And now it's time to say thanks. Oh. So that's what my pilgrimage is about. I love that. So if it, if it was five decades in the making to actually make the pilgrimage, how long in the making was the decision to write the book? Or was that all part of, you know, did you know if I'm making this pilgrimage, I'm writing it down? Or was it after because you felt like my friends keep asking me and I keep saying the same story over and over and over. And they said the proverbial, you should write a book. Um, I didn't think I was going to, I had no plans to write a book when I set out, but I've always, always traveled and kept a travel journal and for a lot of reasons, but everything from expenses to what I did that day and who I met. But around this time, 2014, 2015, there was all this buzz about blogs and I really didn't understand blogs. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, instead of just writing it longhand in my journal, I'm going to do a blog. So I learned about blogs. I got, you know, I took a laptop with me. I had, was all ready. I set up my blog. And then I got to Northwest Spain and guess what? The Wi-Fi there was really poor, at least in 2016. So every day I was struggling with trying to upload photos, get online and so forth. And about three weeks into it, I said, you know what? I'm wasting too much precious time trying to do this blog. I'm just gonna forget about it and go ahead and handwrite. So I went back to my travel journal, but when I got home, then I uploaded everything that I had should have uploaded when I was walking and all these photos. So at that point I thought, okay, well, I have a lot I would like to tell other people about the Camino, such as you don't have to walk every step, but a lot more than that too. Things I wish I had learned before I went. And so I think I'm gonna write this book. And as I said, my biggest struggle was, do I wanna write a guidebook or do I wanna write a memoir? Or do I wanna write both, which is really what I wanna do. And if I wanna do both, how do I do it? Do I do alternating chapters, like an abraded thing, one how-to, one memoir, how one how-to? You know, what, how do I do it? So I struggled just with the organization for a long time, but I finally got something I was happy with. And, um, and, and I should mention too, that I got home in 2016, I planned to have the book done in a year, but then Hurricane Harvey hit Houston my house was flooded. And so that was a whole year getting myself, the house cleaned out, the house rebuilt, me moved back in and so forth. So we're up to now like 2019 and I'm saying, I made this is my new year's resolution. I said, I'm gonna finish this book. I have never kept a new year's resolution in my life, but I kept that one. So my book came out in December, 2019. Fantastic. And the pictures on the cover, are those yours? Are you a photographer too? 
The pictures are not mine, but they're pictures I asked for. So I am not a graphic artist. I knew what I wanted. I wanted a mosaic for my cover. So I hired an, a an artist who happens to be Spanish because he knew all about the Camino. And I said, okay, I want some kind of mosaic, but I don't know how to organize it. And I would like a food picture, a walking picture, a non-walking picture, definitely a picture of the stained glass windows in the Leon Cathedral and so forth. And so he did the framework, which for me was the important part. And I really think he did a wonderful job. And then he picked pictures and then we argued about the photos back and forth until we agreed on the photos that, that appear here. So it's interesting, the, the photo we argued about the most was the food photo. Really? So, yes, yes. I told him in the beginning, I thought just a nice paella shot. And he said, oh, that's so cliche. So he kept giving these things that were really artistic, but as in the mosaic, you could only see half. So it was like half a jarra of sangria. You couldn't even tell what it was unless you knew Spain, you know. So and then he would use, I say, those don't, they just don't work. So if I said, okay, I give up, you'll get your paella. So. <laughs> tell me something. Did you walk, travel the Camino by yourself? I plan to. All my plans were to walk it by myself. But it, like the last minute, my son said, I want to go with you. Really? So came, yeah. And, and, you know, there are pros, pros and cons. I really wanted to walk alone, but having him along, I have to say there were certain points where he really saved my bacon. So in the end, I, I'm glad he came with me. That's fantastic. Well, tell me, what's next for you? Is there another walk pilgrimage or, or other place that you want to visit that you've been pining for for 50 years? <laughs> Not 50 years, but I am. I went back to Spain and Portugal this past fall, and I did another Camino, but on a horseback. So, so my book, which I should have written by now, but I still haven't because like you, I'm very busy with other projects, is going to be writing the Camino de Santiago. And again, this goes along with my philosophy. You don't have to walk it. There, there are actually three approved methods, which is walking, horseback riding, or bicycling. And eventually I hope to do all three. So in the meantime, I, I wrote another book because I couldn't travel. I was locked down with COVID for two years. I wrote a totally different subject book. Um, and I have lots of plans for the future. Fantastic. So you horseback rode, what did you say it was 500 miles? No, the, well, you could do 500 miles, but I only did about, uh, it's 200 kilometers, whatever that works up to, 160 miles on horseback. Oh my gosh, still my backside hurts just thinking about it. Wow. <laughs> well, we did a different route. We went from the border with Portugal up, so it was a straight shot north as opposed to the route from, from France, which is east to west. Gotcha. Oh, I didn't even realize. So there are multiple routes. Correct. There are many, many, many routes. Basically, oh. you start anywhere in the world, but you end up in Santiago. So, you know, there's historic routes, for example, a lot of English pilgrims came. So there's the English route. There's routes from Southern Spain, if you were coming up from Southern Spain. It just so happens that the French route was the most traveled route then in the Middle Ages and also now. Okay. So the history and the art and the architecture along the French route are just unbeatable. They're just fabulous. Is, is there a reason why that's the most popular route? I, I'm guessing that's the only one I knew about. I, it's the most popular because anyone in Europe, they will come through France to get there, except for, like I said, the English or the Scandinavians. But most Europeans 
And believe me, I met pilgrims that were coming from Romania or Poland or places like that. So they all come down that way and through France to get to Spain. Um, but you don't, you can start anywhere in the world. Wow, I had no idea. Boy, I, I thought, oh, I know the Camino. I know people on the Camino. I had no idea there was more than one route that you were allowed to, allowed to, uh, to do it in different methods. Um, oh yeah, I, you know, many people love the Camino so much they'll go and do it. I mean, I've heard of people going 12 times, different routes, they'll take a different route each time. And so they see a different part of the world, a different part of Spain, right, a different right. part of Portugal. Depends on where they start. So yeah, there's many different routes. I, I'm certainly excited to read about the horseback riding. That sounds like it was quite the thing. Um, tell me a little bit about Bayou City Press. So I, as usual, had perfect timing. <laughs> I started my company in late 2019, just before COVID hit. So I feel like I've had you know, two years where it's time out, but we're back on track now. It's a, it's a small press. We, I focus on um, history, international affairs, anything related to Houston. And by that, I mean a Houston author or Houston could be, but mainly my big thing is travel. Okay. So I spent so much of my life overseas and traveling and travel writing, and I'm more a nonfiction writer than a fiction writer. So, but I, I don't, you know, I've had other offers for a book on poetry, for example, sci-fi. That's just, I don't want to do those. I don't think I'm the right editor or the right publisher for those. So I say, please, if it's in my genre, send it to me. But if you send it to me and you're not in my genre, I'll try to refer you to someone else. And that's what I do. I know you do everything. You take every, you send you all genres. You are open for submission so that anyone who has uh, travel can certainly contact you. Um, at, at Bayou City Press, especially travel to the uh, Houston area or anywhere, anywhere. anywhere. Uh, my own books are about Spain, but I will branch out eventually. I love Indonesia. I'd like to write something about Indonesia. Um, I had a submission. Well, my, the next book that I am publishing, not me, but I have an author. It's about travel to Japan and it's a fabulous book. Oh, fantastic. It's very funny too. So anyone who likes cats is interested in Japan, you got to check out this book. It's coming yeah. out in October. I am going to be all over that. Thank you so much. Not just for your book, but buyucitypress.com. So if you've got something uh, that you're interested in submitting, please get it on over to Julie. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephanie. Our next guest, Edward Lerner, is the author of the best of Edward M. Lerner. And he writes, while you probably know Ed from his sci-fi novels, including the Interstellar Net series and the epic Fleet of Worlds series with Larry Niven, Ed is also a prolific author of acclaimed short fiction. This collection showcases his finest and favorite shorter works. Faced with the common question of which of his books should someone read first, he has carefully selected these stories to cover his wide range. Now he can answer this one. Alternate history, parallel worlds, future crime, alien invasion, alien castaways, time travel, quantum intelligence, just don't call him artificial, a sort of haunted robot, deco punk. In this book, you'll find these and more together with Ed's reminiscences about each selection and its relationship to other stories, novels, and even series that span his writing career. 
These are the best as determined by awards, award nominations, and the selective tastes of eight top editors and choosy analog readers. Each excellent story stands alone. You won't need to have read anything prior, but you'll surely want to read more of Ed's book afterwards. Please welcome author Edward Lerner. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie. Oh, such a pleasure to have you. I, I love the way you described it as answering the question of what should I read first? Uh, a book in answer of a question. Yeah, I think most authors get asked from time to time, which of your books should I try? Which is like, which of your children do you like best? <laughs> yes, and we're not supposed to answer that question, are we? Yeah. yeah, the gestation periods are about the same, but other than that, it's uh, different. Now, you had eight editors so, helping you select the, the pieces that go in here. Were you ever at odds? Were you saying, no, 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 we have to put in this one, not that one, that one. So, was there any of that? Well, I'd phrase it differently. The point is that these stories were originally published by eight different editors, all in different oh, venues. Okay. Gotcha. So that's the stories that I chose reflect a range of interests, a range of venues, and it's not just my own peculiar taste. Very nice. Very it's, nice. Was it was it hard to pick? Did you find yourself saying, oh, if only I could squeeze in a few more? It was hard. And, you know, there's a balancing act. If it's too many stories, then it's hard to say these are the best. And I wasn't going for everything I'd ever published. Uh, and if it was too few, too few, it wouldn't be representative of the range of interests I have. Mm -hmm. So I came down on, I don't know where the number came from, 14. Okay. And... There are stories as short as a thousand words and as long as I think 23, 24,000. Uh, there are stories set in the near future, the far future, on earth, far away. There's even one piece of nonfiction in there. I write a lot of popular science. And in order for this to be truly representative of what I do, I wanted something uh, that touched on that interest also. Mm. And the the popular science piece I picked out, which is called Alien Aliens, not in Kansas anymore, um, touches upon uh, a series that I wrote with Larry Niven. It's uh, one of my principles. I did not want to do any excerpts from novels. <laughs> but on the other hand, we had done five novels together and I wanted to touch upon it. So this popular science piece that I picked that talked about what we could expect if and when we do encounter aliens. Uh, let me talk about an alien species that I invented for uh, that book series. So I got to bring uh, that uh, part of my writing career into the picture too. Fantastic. Well, it has obviously been a long and illustrious career. Are there any genres or, or themes that you haven't done yet that you kind of in the back of your mind, if I had the chance, because there's a lot of work that's in there. 
I think I've touched upon all the major uh, subgenres within science fiction, but some much more than others. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would say if I wanted to, to branch out and delve a little bit more deeply into something, it would be alternate history. That's a kind of story in which you say, well, what if something we know happened, happened a little bit differently? Right, right. Very cool. And then what are the ramifications of that? And usually, even the most innocuous change can, can progress into um, a whole lot of difference in, uh, in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you have a, a favorite historical moment that you might want to see in a different light? Uh, I would probably pick a war. I haven't uh, picked one out yet. Um, an awful lot of people who do write alternate history tend to do some variation on what if the South had won the Civil War mm. or what if the Germans had won World War II. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I would probably avoid those. I came close to that. Um, I did a time travel novel where someone was called Countdown to Armageddon, where the bad guy wanted to revisit a pivotal point in early European history, the Battle of Tours in 732, which was as far as uh, the Arabic armies got invading Europe. And... Most uh, people who have studied European history have heard of Charlemagne. The, the hero of the Battle of Tours is a guy named Charles Martel, who was Charlemagne's grandfather. And if that battle had gone differently, things would have been a very whole lot different. <laughs> yes, we, we might all be speaking a different language right now than we are. Yes. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Tell me something. Um, what advice would you give to another if there's a writer who has uh, a body of work such as your own? And I would think what a wonderful gift to yourself, never mind to the reading world, to have a, a best of. What's a good way to get started with something like that? It was kind of a gift to myself. I'll, I'll answer that part first, even though that part wasn't a question. <laughs> Because going over everything that I'd done before and saying, well, what would I include and why would I include it? That was fun. That was an interesting retrospective. Okay. As to the advice part, mm -hmm. I would say, look for some independent judgments. Mm. It's one thing to publish uh, a collection and say, these are my favorites. That should be and can be totally subjective. But if the goal is uh, something you want to call best of, mm -hmm. then there ought to be some independence in this. And that's why uh, on that book cover copy, it talks about uh, a variety of editors who uh, selected the stories in the first place and award nominations and awards. Uh, I had one other criterion that I used, which was, what stories led to a whole bunch more? Mm. So if uh, a story appeared in a magazine and readers wrote in wanting to know more or the editor of the magazine was open to sequels, that's a clue. 
in some cases, the stories in the book grew into novels. In one case, the story in the book uh, turned out to be part of a three novel series. So there's some independent validation there. It's not just my subjective judgment. It's very hard to be objective about your own writing. Oh, I one's always, own writing. I agree. I always say we are the absolute worst judge of what we do ourselves. Well, that's a great piece of advice for someone who's getting started. And congratulations, not just on the book, but on the body of work, your huge catalog that led to this book, which is just amazing. Thank you. Our next author, Tammy Gross, is the author of The Treasure Galleons. It's a prequel to the Golden Age of Piracy series. And our author writes, in the age of sail, a captain's son is left to confront pirates, cannibals, and an angry king after a hurricane devastates his family and their fleet carrying $400 million in treasure. The true story of a seven 1815 Spanish shipwrecks that gave Florida its treasure coast as told in the multi award-winning screenplay. Please welcome author Tammy Gross. So nice to have you here. It is so great to be here and with these two authors who I have so much to say about them but I better not <laughs> you you don't have a show that lasts for hours i'm sure so. <laughs> well it would it would be very easy with this group of authors that's for sure uh, i'm Absolutely. so glad you included in your description there about florida's the the, the nickname for the Tra florida treasure coast i always wondered yeah i always wondered about that too uh i, I love the space coast and they kind of merge you know the space yes. coast and the and my mom lives uh, on cape canaveral and she's right there where there's some treasure stuff and there's a lot of space stuff there as well. <laughs> wow, now is that how you got first involved in the treasure aspect or what got you first involved? You would think so. Actually, my sister is the one who's kind of a uh, pirate freak. <laughs> and uh, I was a musician for like in my other life <laughs> for years and years, decades. And uh, I was actually taking a break and I, was on vacation with my sister and my mother for her i think it was her 70th birthday at the time and uh it's been it's been quite a few years and uh we went to a pirate museum to appease my sister and i found out about two lady pirates that lived 300 years ago and i had never heard of them and i had never seen a movie about them and i could immediately just like see this movie playing out in front of me as i was hearing about them at this museum and I became obsessed. And I actually never went back to music. I, I, I was so obsessed that I dropped all of that and became a writer, became a researcher, traveled the world, became actually <laughs> a victim of actual pirate descendants. At least that's what they bragged that they were at uh, when I was in the Bahamas and I was doing some research there, was chased down by hurricanes while I was trying to get all this information about these lady pirates. And they were just so elusive. But one thing kept happening it kept bringing me back to my own backyard. I'm in Orlando and I kept finding out it started with the treasure ships. It started with the treasure ships. That's what brought these lady pirates. That's what brought Sam Bellamy and Blackbeard and all these different pirates that, uh, that we've heard about over the years. And I, to tell their story, I realized I really had to tell the story of the treasure galleons. And that's how it all started. 
Wow, what a story. My gosh, I'm a little envious. I mean, not, not that I want to be kidnapped in the Bahamas, but going to the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was good. It was there were some good places to go and do some research. I also went to London and went into some seedy areas that I had to go to as well to to get some uh, information, but actually even that was all wonderful. It was an adventure of my own. Right. Now, you mentioned that you when you first heard about this, you envisioned the movie right away and and these are written as screenplays talk to me a little bit about the difference between that approach and how many novelists you know have this idea for a novel and they write a book what makes it different well it, it is different in a lot of ways for one thing while i was doing the research on the story i realized okay if i want to turn this into a movie i better learn a little something about you know how to write a movie <laughs> so i had to do a lot of research at the same time and afterward as well just on how do you write a screenplay? And that became its own little adventure. And I did learn that I was actually kind of onto a new path to do things. I had always said when I was young, because I always loved writing, and I had a cousin who I really, you know, admired. She was an author and she worked with another author. And and I knew that I wanted to write when I was old, sing while I was young. And then when I had some life experience, I would write when I was old. And I, I apparently, when I found out about the pirates, I turned old. <laughs> and that's what I started doing. But it did lead me to realize that screenwriting is, it's very hard. <laughs> because you're taking a lot of stuff. I mean, look at the Marvel movies, right? Most of us are, are, are not trying to write the Marvel movies. But, you know, we all dream. And that's a huge thing to get into. Well, they can't even do it, right? They get it into a three-hour movie, but we have to get it into like a two-hour movie to make a movie. And taking a huge story. And, and what I learned was that not only could I figure it out and I could write the story that I wanted to write, it would make me be very succinct and it would make me write it the best that I possibly could and only include what really was part of the story. And then... I could expand it. I could turn it into a novel afterward. And I realized that's so much easier, at least for me, I realized that it's so much easier to figure out how to write that screenplay, get that story, get it to what it needs to be, make it cinematic, obviously, and then you can turn it into the novel. Because trying to take a 600-page novel <laughs> and turn it into a tiny little 120-page screenplay is a lot harder. That's something I've definitely found to be true. <laughs> so that's that's the that was the kind of the beginnings of that, and that's why I did it the way I did. Plus, I was able to win several awards for the screenplay to kind of vet it to make sure, um, as Edward was just saying, actually, it's just having other people, you know, verify that this this is going in the right direction. It's not just all me and my ideas, and then I put it out to the world. I have people who've read it who've who've been through it, who helped me develop certain things. And so it, it's it's a collaborative effort to write a movie and and it, it made it a collaborative effort to write the book. Oh, that's amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, tell me, what's gonna be next? What are you gonna get obsessed with next so we can have another one? <laughs> I am still obsessed with those lady pirates <laughs> and I still, I still need to tell their story because this is basically what brought them. Uh, and there's a whole story. There's a, I mean, there's really a series of movies. Wow. There's so much more, so much more to come about them as well as other things. You know, I haven't, I have other books that uh, are screenplays turned into novels and other books that I will also, I will just mention Julie. I'll just do it because I can't keep it in. 
uh, my mentor is Kimberly Crow. And some of you may or may not have heard of her, but she's a speaker. She's a world-renowned speaker. And she is actually right now stepping foot on the Camino right now to do ah! her Camino walk. And so she had invited me to do it. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't have time. I don't have the money to do that right now. So this is all you. And I'm going to just be, you know, applauding you to do it. And just like Julie, her son apparently uh, joined her last minute. She was already going to do it with her daughter. And now she's got both her son and her daughter with her. So I'm thinking about the Camino any, anyhow. And there, wow. there, Julie, that's what she's written all about and everything. And I have a feeling that she has read your book already because she did say that she read some inspiring books about it. What a small world. Well, tell me just so I can get a vision of these lady pirates. So yes. who's going to play them in the movie? Like, so I can have a... <laughs> that is so good. You know, actually, it was slated to be, there was slated to be a very bad version <laughs> of their story, a very fictionalized, because I like to tell the true story, you know, obviously embellish where you have to fill in all those blanks that history lost you know, to hurricanes and to, you know, bad weather in their, in their archives and stuff. But Gina Davis and, um, and, and you might remember she did do a pirate movie, but before that pirate movie came out, uh, she, she was slated to do it with Michelle Pfeiffer. And oh. so Michelle Pfeiffer was supposed to be Anne Bonnie and Gina Davis was supposed to be Mary Reed, the way I understand it, but it was going to be very highly fictionalized. And it's actually a book that they were basing it on that I'm, I'm glad it didn't because I think their true story is way more interesting than that fictionalized version. Really? Yeah. So for now, I don't know. It could be anybody. Maybe I think it probably has to be a newcomer because, well, Mary Reed lived her entire life as a man and she was a woman and she had woman feelings, but she was a swashbuckling man on the outside. And so she was protecting herself by, by, you know, being in a guise. Did, and so. Did her crew know or no? Uh, the, the lore is that they did not know. I find it hard to believe that they wouldn't know, but initially they would not have known, you know, but if she's gonna be with a crew or if she gets taken by a crew because a lot of pirates became pirates because they were legitimate seafarers who were taken. And uh, they were taken by the by the Navy because there was a big long war before this whole thing happened with the with the treasure galleons. In fact, that was part of the story because the king in Spain had been waiting for 14 years during a world war. It was really World War Zero had been going on for 14 years. And he was waiting for this treasure to come from the new world to the old world and to fill his coffers again. And then when this when the hurricane hit and smashed all these treasure ships along Florida's coast, that was kind of a big hit on him and all the people who had been in the war and are now out of work. It's like, oh, there's something we can go and get. And it's from our enemy. Yay. Let's go and let's go and loot the, the, the shipwrecks. Oh, my gosh. You know, I'm envisioning not just the movie. I think there should be a theme park on the Treasure Coast also. <laughs> <laughs> in a way, in a way, you know, you're not far off uh, from some of the thinking of some people. You know, when I was doing all this research, it, it brought me to become friends with people who are finding things along Treasure's Co the Treasure Coast all these years. Since the 50s and 60s, one gentleman in particular found some stuff on the on the beach when there weren't as many people living in Florida and he formed a whole uh, group basically of treasure divers including Mel Fisher um, who is kind of an acclaimed uh, treasure diver for other ships that he has found in over the years and uh, so that 
turned into a whole like society of people. And in 2015, the 300 year anniversary of the shipwrecks, we weren't celebrating the shipwrecks. We were commemorating the 1500. At the time, we didn't even know how many. Since Cuba's opened up, we have found out that about 1500, maybe even 2000 people lost their lives in these shipwrecks. Another thousand to 2000 people lived. The numbers are way off because there's so much contraband, including human contraband, that it's hard to know exactly how many. But we know that at least a thousand or 1500 people lost their lives. And uh, so that was that was a major event that went on for a week. And here's uh, I'll just tell you the story. I don't know. It just it's on my mind now is that that's and that's also why I published the book in 2015 originally. Oh. But I've revived it since then. And the reason I turned the screenplay into the book is, is for that 300 year uh, commemoration. There were a lot of books that were being written by different treasure divers, but this was a week long thing because it took a week for them to get from Cuba when they left on July 24th, 1715, to get to the point where the hurricane smashed all the ships up against uh, Florida's shores uh, uh, on July 31st of 2015. And so for that week in, 2015, if I'm saying it right, did I say 1715 or 2015? The second, but it all it all happened in 1715. In 2015, and the people who hold the contracts—I don't want to get into all that—but uh, there's people who hold contracts so that people can still, to this day, dive on Florida shores and they can find treasures and they can make money <laughs> doing this. There's still 300 million dollars worth of treasure still out there. They didn't recover it all. They barely even got a quarter of it. Three, and on the very last day, treasure. Yes, three hundred million dollars in treasure. Still yes. out there. It's still out yes. there on the coast of Florida. It's it's still out there. So come on and start fishing the shores because they have been finding some really interesting things. We just had a big celebration of two pieces of something that's in my book. I talk about that quite this piece quite a bit called the Golden Pelican, and they just had a reunification ceremony where uh, a man who collects these things, so he has, he has, he's a man of means, two female, <laughs> this, is, this is not made up, two female treasure divers, one found the pelican and another found the missing wing. That, that, and, and that was 10 years later, almost 10 years, like, like not to the day, but like 10 years, one in 2010, one in 2020. And at the end of our commemoration week, the people who hold the contracts to all this come in all sunburnt. And we were all wondering why they weren't there because we were having a big dinner. And we were, you know, finalizing the week and everything. And uh, and they walk in, they're all sunburnt and sandy and sweaty and, and salty. And they can't say anything at the moment, but they said, yes, today is the day. And we find out about a week or two later that they had found, I think it was $3 million in gold coins off of Vero Beach. Oh, my. There's still a lot out there. The story is continuing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I'm thinking... Uh, movie, theme park, and of course a dog <laughs> exactly. because you could be like renting equipment and having boat trips out to go find treasure off the coast. I've got a whole thing going. Absolutely. There, you know? This is going to become the new yep. vacation destination. Disney will be rivaled by this. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We're, you know, that's exactly how we kind of look at it too. You know, I feel like I'm part of the treasure diving community, even though I don't go out there treasure diving, I probably need to get out on a boat and start doing I that. I think you need exactly. to go out there on a boat and go treasure diving just so you can get I do. Experience. You know, it's funny how popular pirates are, even in outer space. I read, I don't read that much science fiction, but when I do, there's always pirates out there. 
And you know, Star Wars, <laughs> right. pirates. It's all pirates. Everywhere. All pirates. Pirates are very sexy, I guess. So I don't know. <laughs> I gotta say, and I'll give you I'll give something away about the pirates. You know, I I look at what Ben Franklin said about, you know, how we were uh, committing the ultimate act of treason, I guess, really, but actually the ultimate act of piracy when in 1776 we did the de Declaration of Independence and really the whole pirate story leads right up to that. Uh, one of those female pirates, she lives till, and I'm giving things away, but she lives till 1784. And so she was part of that. Um, well, you know, your, your Spanish treasure is what came into Spain and fueled some of the beautiful cathedrals you see along the Camino de Santiago. They paid for these incredible right. chapels that rich noble people would build in the cathedrals to, to for, you know, their family chapels. Incredible. All that money was pouring in from the new world. Exactly. There's There are so many horrific stories behind some of that, right? But it also gave us some beauty and it gave us, you know, some things that are lasting 300 years later that we're seeing. And actually 500 years later, because they were already doing the treasure ships, what, for about two or 300 years before that. So... Yeah, exactly. Amazing. I love these amazing tie-ins. And Tammy, I love that your mentor is on the Camino right now. I think that is that crazy. <laughs> Absolutely fabulous. Uh, Julie, tell me something. If if I were going to be shopping today, and uh, besides myself, because I have not yet done the Camino, but besides me, can you describe who I should be buying a copy of your book for today so I can go shopping? Well, the, the best person, the best reader of my book is someone who is thinking about going the Camino but hasn't yet gone, or someone who is will, knows they will never go but would like to know what the experience is like. Mm. Uh, someone who's been on the Camino already probably knows a lot of what I write about in my guidebook portions. But if you haven't ever been on the Camino and you're thinking about going, or if you know you never will go, then my book is really good for telling you what you need to do this experience to help you decide if you want to walk it or not walk it. And also what you're going to, the kinds of adventures you're going to have on the Camino because okay. they're in my book. And, and maybe it's me, but I actually like reading about places that I just went to kind of relive that experience and then get uh, someone else's perspective. So whether you want to go on the Camino, whether you can't go on the Camino or whether you just got back from the Camino. <laughs> yes, and as I said, they can argue with me. You know, they can, they, they do argue with my premise, you know. I guess, well, it's your opinion, this is my opinion. You know, you have your Camino, I have my Camino. That's right, I, I, I never realized that there were so many arguments about the Camino, which is hilarious. <laughs> Edward, how about you? Yes. Who should I be buying a copy of your book for today? The best of Edward M. Lerner. Science fiction is so popular these days. Star Trek, Star Wars, mm -hmm. Stargate, uh, Marvel Universe. It's hard to figure out who watches popular culture who wouldn't find a lot to enjoy in this collection. Well, because a lot of the same themes that uh, show up in these video science fiction uh, venues uh, get explored in, in more depth and more imaginatively uh, in the written form. And I, I like to think I've done that as one example. And it almost ties in with uh, Tammy's situation. One of the stories in the book is called My Fifth and Most Exotic Voyage. Gulliver of Gulliver's Travels had 
four voyages and I wrote his fifth voyage. And uh, one of the things that Gulliver missed when he was uh, in uh, rather unexplored corners of the world was the War of the Spanish Succession, which is the war that Tammy was talking about. That's right. That's the war. It's yeah. World War Zero. Gulliver's. World War Zero. <laughs> yeah. It, it was. And Gulliver's uh, fifth adventure is even more exotic than anything that uh, Jonathan Swift wrote about. Well, thank you. And now we know who to shop for. And Tammy, who should yeah. we be shopping for for you today if I were buying a copy of, of the Treasure Galleons? Well, you know, it's funny. I I, uh, I help other screenwriters do the same thing where they turn their screenplays into books, but uh, I'm not as well versed in the book world when it comes to like what the different, uh, you know, ratings are and everything. But I can tell you I'm a PG, maybe PG-13 writer. So, <laughs> so it's really kind of, it's actually, it's been called a young adult book because it is from the perspective of actually of the son of somebody that all the treasure uh, uh, divers and, and uh, archeologists, they all know about uh, Don Antonio Echevers, but his son, Fairman or Furman, uh, however you say it best, I don't speak Spanish, so that's that, I just gave that away. <laughs> but uh, the, the son's point of view, he's only 12 years old when this all happens, but he would have been with his father and it's from his point of view. And you know, this, this man, he lost, he lost some children in this. It, it's it's uh, it's got some danger. It's got some death, but it's also somewhat lighthearted. It's not quite Pirates of the Caribbean, but uh, lighthearted. But uh, it doesn't have the ghosts and that stuff. It's all real. It's the real thing. And I'm hoping you're hearing me okay because I know that there was there seemed to be a little little thing there going on with the uh, with the audio. But uh, there's lots of pictures in the book, so it could be for anybody. Really, you could just go through the pictures. My mom is an artist, so every single Every single chapter starts with some kind of a Florida art that she has done. So. <laughs> and Tammy, if someone's interested in what you were describing about uh, making a book out of a screenplay, can they contact you at scriptpreneur.com? They absolutely can. I also, they can just visit my imprint, which is realnovels.com, R-E-E-L novels.com. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So uh, if you've got a screenplay, um, you're going over to realnovels.com or scriptpreneur.com. If you've got a travel uh, manuscript that you're thinking about representation, please visit bayoucitypress.com. We are, we're getting them all in here, except for our hot yeah. romance we're covering a lot today. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. What, what a treasure, a real treasure, the three of you are. Um, please- No pun intended. Exactly. No pun. Please, please send me uh, any uh, things that you're gonna be doing so we can share them with our audiences at Between the Covers. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank 